We continue in the book of Psalms. This week we'll be looking at Psalm 33. The introduction for this is really incredibly short. (laughs) There's no superscription here, which means there's no way of knowing exactly who wrote the psalm. There's no indication of a period where it could have been written in Israel's history. It's simply known as a psalm of praise, and it follows a very similar pattern for the hymns of praise that were familiar to the Hebrew people. It focuses on a call to praise God. It provides reasons that we are to praise God. And then it concludes with an expressed confidence in God's faithfulness to his people and to his purposes. There are 22 verses in this psalm, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So read along with me. In Psalm 33, we're going to read the entire psalm, but we won't get through the entire psalm in its teaching this morning. So let's read this together. Verse 1 begins, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. People, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in you. What an incredible psalm of praise that God has given to His people as a way of remembering who He is and what He's done, a challenge for us today to fulfill this in our own lives, individually and in the life of this church, corporately. This is going to be divided into three sections. We're going to look at section one and a part of section two today. So the first section is the call to praise. Now, in these first three verses, there's a mixture of all the facets in this call to praise. So let's read this again. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous one. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So within this call to praise... There are three components that we're going to look at, and this is what's mixed within each of these verses. The first one, letter number one, is the praise is to be exuberant. Let me repeat that. Praise is to be exuberant. It is quite clear that our praise of God is not to be relegated to simply a somber expression of worship. 
The people of God have every reason to shout joyfully to the Lord and to exuberantly praise His name. While quiet and contemplative worship certainly has its place and is quite fitting as we consider the holiness, the majesty, the righteousness of God, so also is a jubilant expression of the Lord, and we find that contained in these verses. In verse 1 it says, Sing for joy, praise is becoming. Give thanks, verse 2, give thanks with instruments. Verse 3, sing to Him, play skillfully with a shout of joy. One commentator summarizes three, these three verses like this. The scene is a noisy, joyous occasion with musicians and singers and worshipers joining together in raucous praise. Now, worship isn't often considered raucous, is it? But I guarantee you, if we were to go back and visit... The ancient Jewish celebration, we would say, there's something different going on there than it's going on here. It was a time of great celebration, a time where people exuberantly praised and worshipped the Lord. Now, we are sometimes fearful that celebrative worship isn't pleasing to God or is an improper expression of our worship of God. Now, I've been in chaotic worship services before. I had a few friends in college who were of the charismatic persuasion, and they would beg me to come to church with them. And I would relent, and I would go, and it was exactly as I thought it would be. This one Sunday morning, I go with a good friend of mine. We ran together. We worked out together. He begged me to come for months and months, and I finally came. And he said, no, it's not like that at all. It's great. It's great worship. And I said, okay, I'll go. So I went. We got in the parking lot. He went to the back of his car, opened up the trunk, and he pulled out his tambourine. And I went, oh, no. This is exactly what I was expecting it to be. And so we go in for worship, and sure enough, after about the second song, he's a-clapping away with that tambourine, and there's people running laps around the aisle, and they're raising their hands, and they're just making all kinds of noise. That's not the kind of worship that the psalmist is talking about. We can celebrate with a joyful shout, with exuberant praise of God, in a way that is fitting of the King of Kings. This chaotic worship experience that I've been a part of, and maybe you have at some point in your life, is not to be the norm. Now, in these verses, there's only two instruments that are identified, and they are thought to be representative of the entire orchestra that was at the disposal of the Jewish people. I'm going to read, read along with me, Psalm 150. We're going to read it in its entirety. It's only six verses. Listen to this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now what do you get from that? We should exuberantly praise the Lord with everything that we have at our disposal. Cymbals, drums, guitars, voices, anything and everything that we can present musically to the Lord is fair game in this jubilant expression of worship to the Lord. Now, we may shout joyfully for our favorite team as these men lead them on to victory. We may shout joyfully for our children and our grandchildren as they compete in athletic events. We may applaud and cheer 
loudly for those who perform with great skill and excellence. We may even shout for joy when the candidate that we wanted was, was voted into office. But do we shout joyfully to the Lord? Is there a shout of joy coming from our souls that expresses the worthiness and the greatness and the majesty of our God? It's clear from the Psalms that we are to praise the Lord with great passion and great excitement. Is He worthy of excited praise? Is He deserving of passionate praise? Is He capable of understanding our intent in offering to Him joyful praise? Do we shout joyfully to the Lord? As long as we maintain worship that is centered on God and doesn't have as a goal to entertain people, we should feel free to sing songs that express our love and devotion to Him in an excited manner. The call is to praise the Lord with exuberance as we reflect on who He is and what He has done for us. Number two in this call to praise is this. Praise is for the believer. Spattered through these first three verses, verse 1 in its entirety, sing for joy in the Lord. O you righteous one, praise is becoming to the upright. Verse 2, give thanks to Him. Verse 3, sing to Him. The words upright and righteous here refer to the community of worshipers that have gathered together to praise and worship the God that they love and they serve. The implication is the redeemed people of God gather for worship to praise Him for all that He has done and to worship Him for who He is. Now, in our world today, in the modern church movement, there seems to be a greater concern about the lost people who might be attending the worship service and catering it to the unbeliever rather than making worship service for the believer. It's a big part of the philosophical debate in modern church today over worship. Seeker-driven or seeker-sensitive churches always have to ask themselves these questions. How will a lost person react to this? How will a lost person understand this? What will a lost person think about this? And as we begin to think about what a lost person might consider in our worship, you know what we're going to start doing? We're going to start pulling back the central tenets of all that we celebrate about who God is and what God has done. This is why churches today don't sing about the blood. They don't sing about the need for the blood. They don't sing about the, the, the cleansing from our sin. They want people to be happy. They want them to feel good. And they don't want to talk about the heart of the matter that you and I are desperately lost apart from the work of Christ. And we are intensely needing this blood washing that He gives to us on the cross. But seeker-driven and seeker-sensitive churches have as their highest concern the lost person that might, in, might attend rather than the believers who are there. What would a lost person be able to praise God for? How does a lost person express the worship of a God that they don't even know? The admonition in verse 1 is to sing for joy in the Lord. Not just to the Lord, certainly not just about the Lord, but it is in the Lord. It indicates that our worship of Him is to be in context of our relationship with Him. Verse 2 says that we are to give thanks to the Lord. What does a lost person have to give thanks to God for? Praise and worship of God is uniquely for the believer and our concern should always be about helping the believer worship Him in the context 
of their relationship with them. In the Bible, there are four major themes. There's creation, there's the fall, there's redemption, and there's restoration. There's other things that are sprinkled all throughout the Bible, but those are the four major themes. And so we try to design our worship around those four themes. It is God as Creator. It is God as the Almighty. He is the Powerful. He is the Omniscient One. He is majestic and filled with splendor and holy and righteous. So we sing songs that celebrate that. The fall. Man's departure from God's plan. The depth of man's sin. The separation that we experience because of our sin. Redemption, the work of Christ on the cross. What He has done for us. How we need that. How we are to respond to that. Restoration, the future hope that is ours. As the children of God, there's a lot of overlap in the songs that we select, but those are the four major themes that we try to cover in the design of our worship services. Praise is uniquely for the believer. And when a church stops thinking about that and starts thinking about how can we have lost people feel good about our worship, we have slipped down a slope that there may not be a recovery from. Thirdly, praise is to grow. Verse 3 says, Sing to Him a new song. This exact phrase appears in Psalm 96.1, Psalm 98.1, in Psalm 149.1. It also appears in Revelation 5.9. One commentator says, It is possible that the, word, that the words designate basically the ever new freshness of the praise of God in His victorious kingship. Think about that. The ever new freshness of the praise of God in His victorious kingship. You see, what you and I knew about God in the weeks and the months after our salvation should pale in comparison to what we know and have experienced about God 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Isn't that right? You see, the closer we get to God, the more that we know about God, the newer our worship ought to be. Because it isn't just like a child worships. It's not like an adolescent in worship. It is an adult who understands the significance of the cross of Christ and is compelled to worship Him joyfully and exuberantly as an expression of all that God has done for us. Singing a new song to the Lord doesn't mean that we throw out all the old stuff and focus only on what is new, but it means that a worship of Him should grow as our relationship with Him grows. Every day, every week, every month, every year, there should be growth in our relationship with the God and the expression of our praise and worship is to be reflected in new songs that express these new truths and these new revelations in our experience about the sufficiency, about the faithfulness, about the depth of God's love for me. We see new mercies every day, don't we? We experience new faithfulness every day, don't we? We see, the new, we see new beauties of God every day, don't we? And so there's a constant expression of love and worship and praise to God as individuals experience these things in their relationship with God. And the church would do well to embrace these new songs and find ways to stretch our worship to express it differently than we did in the past. Charles Spurgeon said this, a new song, that is to say, a new and recent composition on account of recent benefits or constantly new songs, song succeeding song as daily new material for divine praise, 
offers itself to the attentive student of the works of God. Each new song sung gives a greater expression of love and thanks and worship to this God that has initiated a relationship with us. And for us to think that I've got 10 or 15 favorites and if you don't sing those, I'm not going to be very happy. And if you add new music, I can't relate to that, so I don't want to learn it. I have been miffed in my years of ministry of people who have said, well, you know, I really don't like the worship thing so much, so I come after it, after it ends and then I just sit for the preaching. Go back and read Psalm 150. What does it say? Over and over and over and over. It says, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. That's the call to praise. The call is an exuberant shout of joy for who God is and what He has done. It's uniquely for the believer and it should grow as we grow in our relationship with Him. Secondly, Roman numeral 2, the motivation for praise. This motivation for praise is expressed in five ways or five reasons, but we're only going to get through two this morning. And we'll pick this up next week and finish this up. So number one is... The motivation for praise is for his character. Look what it says in verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Letter A, he is upright and he is faithful. These are synonymous terms that describe what he says and what he does. His word is upright. His work is done in faithfulness. Everything he says, everything he's done, everything is done in the context of the character of God. What he says and what he does can also be considered synonymous, as we will see in verse 6, as we look specifically at the work of creation. So everything that God says and everything that God does is consistent with his nature. Now, you and I struggle with the attributes of God, and we'll put them in a big box, and we'll say, well, well, this is God in love, and this is God in justice, and this is God in mercy, and this is God in faithfulness, but you can't separate the attributes of God. God is a just God. God is a faithful God. All the time. That never changes. The attributes of God are unchangeable, so everything he says, everything he does is consistent with his attributes, his words and his works reveal his existence, his power, his wisdom, his majesty, his mercy, his love, his grace, and most importantly, his wonderful plan of salvation that has intersected our lives and changed us forever. We praise him because of his faithfulness. Now, the lost world looks at human suffering and they question the existence of God. You ever heard that? Well, if God's a God of love, where was God in 9-11? If God's a God of love, where is God in the hurricane in the Bahamas? But the believer sees human suffering in light of man's sin, and it turns our hearts to Him, and it thanks Him for His unwavering faithfulness in spite of difficult circumstances and unwelcomed hardships in our lives. We praise Him because of His faithfulness. The unbeliever can't do that because they know nothing about the faithfulness of God. Letter B. He loves righteousness and justice. Verse 5a is exactly what that says. That is consistent with His own character. God loves righteousness and justness because God is righteous and God epitomizes what is just in the universe that He has created. For God to love something means that it is central 
to his being, and it is good. God doesn't love anything that is inconsistent with who he is. Look what it says here in Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. His judgments, His sovereign rule, and His relationships with His people are all characterized by a working out of His plans in our lives. He works these plans out righteously and justly to accomplish what He desires to accomplish in and through each one of us. He delivers and He judges. He rewards and He punishes. He gives life and He gives death. He raises up and He humbles in righteousness and in justice. Whatever He does is righteous and that it is an expression of His wisdom and conformity to His will. I'm repeat that. Whatever He does is righteous in that it is an expression of His wisdom and conformity to His will. Now, you and I, more than likely, have a a lengthy list of circumstances and hardships in our lives that we would have never, ever chosen for ourselves. Isn't that right? God, I didn't vote for that. You didn't ask my opinion of how to get me to be where you want me to be doing what you want me to do. But you see, God in His infinite wisdom, bathed in His righteousness and His justness, does what He wants to do so that you and I will be conformed to His will. I've heard people say this before, and I've said it myself. You know, sometimes God speaks through the illumination of His Word, and sometimes God speaks with a two-by-four up across the head because I'm just not getting it. Isn't that right? Conformity to His will should be our goal. Conformity to His will is bathed in God's righteousness and His justness. The rule of faith is that whatever God decrees is right, do you agree? Whatever God decrees is right, and whatever He brings to pass is faithful and true. Now, sadly, there are a lot of Christians who would wag their finger at them and say, I don't know about that. I don't think I can agree with that. That's because they have a perfect view and understanding of who God actually is. The unbeliever cannot understand that God is righteous and just. And because that is true about God, the unbeliever has no grounds to worship God for His righteousness and for His justness. But not for us. By faith we believe that all He does is governed by His righteousness and His justness. As you juggle some of these ideas in your head and you think about the vast amount of hardship and suffering in the world, the kinds of things that are just just almost unthinkable. I remember this. This holy, righteous, faithful God acts according to His own justness and sent His Son into this world as a sacrifice So that all that is wrong in the heart of man can be atoned for through the blood of Christ and gives us the ability to sing to the praiseworthiness of this God. You know, Tony read these verses in Philippians and these things that are excellent, these things that are eternal, pale in comparison 
to the difficulty we face in our life. As we think about our salvation, as we think about our unworthiness, as we think about our undeservedness, as we think about the reality of who God is, as we wrestle with this idea of righteousness and justness within the economy of God's will, was it just that He sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin? No, it was not. But God did it according to His will. And we sit back and we enjoy that and we relish in that and we ought to do that the same way with whatever happens in our lives that we would not choose for ourselves. Well, the third aspect of His character Letter C, he filled the earth with his love. Verse 5b says, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. You know, it's not speckled throughout the world. It is full in the world, the loving kindness of the Lord. This is most certainly true as we consider the beauty of the world that God has made. You think about the sunsets and the ocean views, the mountains and the meadows the creatures that run and fly and swim. We look at these things with great amazement and we can see the handiwork of God. We can see the loving kindness of God is expressed through these things that He has created. The intricate interdependence of the laws of physics that govern the earth that we live on, its gravity, its axis, its rotational speed, its distance to the sun, its atmosphere, everything about it is filled with the loving kindness of the Lord. Everything that we enjoy in this world is an expression of His loving kindness. Food that tastes good. Flowers that smell good. Sounds that are pleasant to the ear. All of these are small examples of God's loving kindness in the world. You know, you think about the kind of food that you just absolutely despise. God could have made everything taste like that. Those smells that just repulse you, nauseate your stomach. God could have made everything smell like that. But he didn't. We experience such beauty in this world that is the result of God's loving kindness and we take it for granted day after day after day. You've heard the expression, stop and smell the roses. You see, when we do that, when we stop and we reflect, we meditate, we consider the loving kindness of God. It's a praiseworthy thing. Our hearts should be compelled to shout for joy and what God has done for us. As much pleasure as we can find in our worldly existence, it is even more true that in God's loving kindness, He has made Himself known to us and invites us into relationship with Him. You know, what a great tragedy to be enamored at the beauty of this world that God has created and not know the Creator Himself. What a tragedy! To become one with Him, to become His child, to become intimately acquainted with His goodness, to receive His mercy and His grace, to have the promise of an eternity with Him. Unbeliever cannot worship God for those things. He knows nothing about them. We should be compelled to sing to Him with shouts of joy because of who He is and what He's done for us. Now, verses 4 and 5 that we just looked at are foundational to the other expressions of the praiseworthiness of God. These will expand on the character of God's Word and on His work. So number two in our outline, is the motivation for praise is for His character. Secondly, it's for His creation. Verse 6 and 7. 
By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Now this is a very clear reference to the um, creation narrative that you would find in Genesis 1, and it emphasizes his word and his works that are the result of his word. So letter A, his creation by his word. Verse 6, this is the first bookend of this statement about creation. Out of absolutely nothing, God has spoken everything into existence that is in existence. Everything that is in existence owes its existence to the creative work of God. Out of nothing, God created everything. The heavenlies here likely refers to the complete creation of God and would include the universe and everything in it. As limited as the ancients' understanding was of this vast universe that we live in, it is thought to be an, an all-comprehensive term about the heavens that God has made. I imagine they could look up at the sky and they could see the stars as far as the horizon would let them, and they'd have to wonder, I, I wonder how far that goes. I wonder how high that goes. But it's comprehensive of everything that God has created. The predominant theory on creation in our world today is the Big Bang Theory. It's not just a, a comedy show. It's the actual widespread belief about how this world came into existence. So bear with me. Let me read uh, some things about this that I got as it relates to the Big Bang Theory. So under this theory, space and time emerged together billions of years ago and the energy and matter initially present had become less dense as the universe expanded. After an initial accelerated expansion called inflationary epoch and the separation of the four known fundamental forces, the universe, the universal, excuse me, the universe gradually cooled and continued to expand, allowing the first subatomic particles and simple atoms to form continues. Dark matter gradually gathered, forming a foam-like structure of filaments and voids under the influence of gravity. Giant clouds of hydrogen and helium were gradually drawn to the places where dark matter was most dense, forming the first galaxy, stars, and everything else seen today. Now, you read that and say, man, that's a pretty impressive theory about the origins of our universe, is it? I mean, how do you debate the helium and the gases and the energy and all that other stuff that comes along? But let me ask you this. Where did the energy and the matter initially present come from? Billions and billions of years ago, there was energy. But where did that energy come from? Where was that matter that was initially present that combined with the energy that created the Big Bang? Where did all that come from? Well, Here's how this is explained by another scientist. In the beginning, there was not yet any matter. Okay? However, there was a lot of energy in the form of light, which comes in discrete packets called photons. When photons have enough energy, they can spontaneously decay into a particle and into an antiparticle. Okay, so where did the light come from? Who created the light? Well, it takes more faith to believe in the scientific explanation of creation than it does to believe in an all-powerful God creating everything by His own choice of action, and in this case, the spoken word. It just, it just boggles my mind how unfaith-like scientism can be 
as they try to explain these things that are really quite unexplainable. Before there was ever any sophisticated explanation of the origins of the universe in the first century, the writers of Hebrews said this, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. He didn't know anything about atoms and particles and photons and all that mess. All he knew was by faith God created it out of absolutely nothing and everything that I can see is created by God. The unbeliever cannot praise God for His creation because they don't believe that God created it. So why would we cater worship to an unbeliever? How ridiculous is that? Secondly, letter B, not only by His Word, but also by His breath. Verse 6 continues, And by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. So in the heavenlies, this vast expanse that can be seen and not yet completely explored, God, by the breath of His mouth, created all the host. In the Old Testament, host is understood as an army, as an angelic being, or as stars. So in this case, it means stars. The host of stars that you see in the vast expanse of their universe was created by the breath of God Himself. Now, I want you to just imagine having the ability to go and have countless stars just appear out of nothing. And that's what God's Word says is exactly what has taken place. Stars in the universe number in the billions and God created them all. Here's what Isaiah said, 5, 6, 700 B.C. Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. You know, we've named these stars. We've named these plants. I can guarantee you, God named them first. Because He created them out of absolutely nothing. And He knows absolutely every one of them by name. He named them all as He created. I wonder what the ancients would say if they could see what you and I have the privilege of seeing today. Before there was space exploration, before there were satellites orbiting around the earth, before there were telescopes that could look billions of light years into space, they looked at what they could see and they said, wow, what a God! He is amazing! He is mighty! He is worthy of joyful shouts of praise. Let her see. God creates by His hands. The extension of His Word and His breath is by God's hands. Verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Now this verse, many believe, is an allusion to God's deliverance of Israel when pursued by the Egyptian army. And He gathered up the waters of the Red Sea as recorded in the book of Exodus. So there's the creation of the world and then there's the creation of God's people that the psalmist readers would very clearly understand. Psalm 15, excuse me, Exodus 15.8 At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of of the sea. This is what God did in order for the, for the Israelites to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And when they had passed through, God allowed the waters to recede and wiped out the enemy. So this calls to mind to the readers 
God's work of creation, but also the creation of a people of his own choosing. What was promised to Moses at his call came to fruition on the other side of the Red Sea. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. God speaking, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the writer of the Psalms would have no real idea about the vast waters that covered the earth. He knows what took place by historical accounts at the crossing of the Red Sea. So let me share some information with you about the waters of the earth. It is said that 71% of the earth is covered by water. The average ocean depth is 2.3 miles or about 12,000 feet. The deepest known ocean depth is 6.8 miles or 36,200 feet, which is taller than the, the tallest mountain we have, which is Mount Everest. It is estimated that in the oceans and the seas, listen to this, there is 321 million cubic miles of water. Cubic miles. Or 352 quintillion gallons of water. Well, what's a quintillion? It's one with 18 zeros, and there's estimated to be 352 of those. That doesn't account the lakes and the rivers and the streams and the glaciers and the permanent snow that's in some parts of the world. Just what we would consider to be in our oceans. And here's what the psalmist says. God controls it all with His hands. He puts the oceans in storehouses like a farmer puts up his crops at the end of the harvest season. With God's hand... 351 quintillion gallons of water he contains. They had no idea how much water was in the world. They may, not have, may have never seen any lake outside of their walking distance. Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, Antarctic Ocean, didn't know they were even there. But they knew this. God created it all. God controls it all with His hands. And that's a praiseworthy thing in the minds of the psalmist. It's not a big deal for God to contain the waters where He has defined their parameters. He sustains it all in the universe that He has created. Verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. The only correct response to the glory and majesty of creation is to fear the Lord, which means to revere or to consider with awe to stand in awe of Him and say, wow, what an amazing God. Paul would say it like this in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. See, the lost person can't Praise God for the creation by His Word or by His breath or is sustained in His hands because they know absolutely nothing about it. Verse 6 is the first bookend on creation. Verse 9 is the second bookend on creation. Verse 9 reads, For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. God said it. 
And that was it. The same word that created the universe is the same word that sustains the universe. Because the unbeliever has no idea about these things, the unbeliever cannot praise God. Thinking about God's character, just what we looked at today, thinking about God's character, thinking about God's creation, and as a part of His character, being filled with mercy and grace to make a way for our salvation, as a part of His creative work, making you and I to be new people with new hearts, with a new destiny, a new citizenship, should we not shout for joy exuberantly in praise and worship of this God that we know? Well, God's people said, yeah, we certainly should. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are praiseworthy. Father, we would be quick to acknowledge how easy it is for us to forget that. We allow so much and sometimes so little, to impact our willingness to give you the praise that you are deserving of. Father, would you cleanse us of that sin? Would you restore to us a renewed understanding of who you are and what you've done? Breaking away the familiarity. Helping us to see with new eyes the greatness of the God that you are. And that we would unashamedly, that we would joyfully sing praise to you. We thank you for loving us and blessing us and providing all that we need. May you be pleased with our hearts as we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him.